Well, thank you for your strong voices this morning. I'm having a little fun with the last song. I know I saw some of you get caught off guard a little bit there as we went into the optional ending. Uh, but uh, it is a joy to sing of our victory as well as the truth that Christ arose as we build into Romans, the book of Romans. And we're going to be studying uh, this new series, this new study in this book. And a word of explanation is needed here as I begin. Is And I spoke with our elders earlier in the week, and as of Thursday, I was planning on Romans. As of Friday, I was planning on 1 Corinthians. As of Saturday, I was planning on Romans. And that gives you a little bit of what goes on in a pastor's life as he's trying to uh, understand what the will of the Lord is. And one of the things that were taught, that was taught to me as I was preparing quickly to study for 1 Corinthians, I'm going to share with you in a moment. So the Lord used that in our study here today. I just didn't know that's what he was doing at the time. And so we have an exciting study coming up here in the introduction today to Romans, but in the future, uh, more about through going through this book. Today, we're just going to gather some understanding of this book so that we can study it more in depth as we move through over the next several months. It'll take us months to get through this book, uh, but by the time we were done, uh, we will learn an awful lot about what it means to be a Christian and also how to put that into practice. One uh, person has said, uh, considering Romans, that Romans is a classic. To the unsaved, it offers a clear exposition of their sinful, lost condition and God's righteous plan for saving them. To new believers, they learn of their identification with Christ and of victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the mature believer, they find a never-ending delight in its wide spectrum of Christian truth. And so today we begin a study that is for every single one of us, something that you and I should be applying to our hearts and to our lives. And let's do so with the Lord's blessing. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, as we bow our heads again before you, I thank you for the privilege that it is to study a book that is so foundational to our faith. Lord, we understand that this is a lengthy study. It is one upon which we strike out knowing that it's going to take us a long time to come to the end. But today I pray that as we move through this, overview, as we look at the book as a whole, as we look at Paul, and we look at the purpose, that we would be able to glorify you in our lives and recognize how this book lays out and why it is so foundational to each one of us. I pray if there's any today who do not know you as Savior, that over uh, the process of the day that they would understand the way that you have provided for their salvation. For those of us who are new believers, I pray that you would provide for them an assurance of the faith that they have, the victory that is guaranteed to us because you arose. And for those of us who are mature, I pray that you would guide us and direct us to find these Christian truths and apply them to our hearts and to our lives, that our maturity would continue to process and that your name would be glorified through it all. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the time that we can delight in your word today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The idea that I want us to focus on is this. The truth of God's wonderful righteousness causes believers of all peoples to stand boldly for the gospel. This is really going right to the heart of what Romans is all about. This goes right to the heart of what the purpose of the book is, why Paul wrote it. And so we understand that the truth of God's wonderful righteousness causes believers of all peoples to stand boldly for the gospel. This morning we are beginning a new series on a powerful book of Scripture, And it is in this book that we find the spiritual foundations, the moorings to our faith. That is what holds us on. 
we find a man devoted to the Lord, and the Lord exercising His great righteousness in such a manner as we move, as He moves ungodly, unrighteous mankind to victory in the name of the Son of God. That is powered by the righteousness of our God. So we begin with a look at the author of the book, and that is Paul. We're going to look at him in depth here because he defines something unique as we begin this book, and he defines something that you and I need to understand about himself. We then delve into the purpose of why he is writing to the Romans, even uh, though at this point in history, when he is penning this letter, he has not yet been to Rome. And yet he is still writing a book to the Roman Christians. And so we see why. What is the purpose of him doing so? And finally, I want us to gain an appreciation of the outline of this book. And the reason that I want to do this, I'm not, usually I would spend some time on some background information, but I'm going to give that to you as we go along. We identify more with the Roman person than we identify with anybody else in Scripture. And because of our culture, because of who we are. And so we're not going to spend as much time on background. Instead, we're going to spend it on the outline because I want to see, I want to show you how Paul has laid this work out so masterfully by the power of the Lord. And so we are going to begin in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to spend some time here as we look at Paul. 1 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul does something that is intriguing that I want to, to, gather in your mind. He defines himself in a fascinating way. And in many ways, it is a similar description to what should be a definition of those of all those who know Christ as Savior. But he says this first. He says that he was purchased. He calls himself a bondservant. In greeting the believers in Rome, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. In fact, he uses the word doulos, which is for slave. And to the Roman mind, Paul was expressing something not only of uh, stature and position, of lowly stature and position, but also exceedingly positive. Now, it's hard for you and I to understand how this would be exceedingly positive. So we have to understand what Paul is saying. Because if you lived in that day and age, you would say, and if you worked for the government, say you worked for Caesar, you would say, I am a bondservant of Caesar. Well, to somebody who's standing there, that's like saying, I am in the top echelons of the government, even though I serve in this lowly position. So in the Roman mind, Paul is saying, I am a slave of the most powerful king of all kings, Christ Jesus. So that's exceedingly positive, but at the same time, a position of lowliness. You see, a slave or a bondservant, as Paul is calling himself, refers to one who is purchased and is the property of another. Paul is saying, I belong to Christ Jesus. Yet, he also is saying that I am a servant to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul was revealing his master as much as his position. And he is also revealing his ties to his master. And I want you to understand something. We're going to understand it more as we move through the book of Romans. When you are born, you are a slave to something. When, you, when and if you came to know Christ to save you, you're a slave to something. The reality is, right now, presently, no matter if you know Christ or not, you're a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin, which is how you were born. You're a slave to sin. You do what sin wants you to do. You live as the world wants you to live. There may be some moral 
uh, things in there that you say, well, those are good things, but ultimately you're a slave to sin, you're lying, you're cheating, all of those things. And when you come to know Christ as Savior, you those bonds that are only separated by death, because a master owned his doulos, his bond servant, until the master died. Not when the slave died. The master still had right over the body of the slave, even after the slave died. But when the master died, the bonds were released. The only way that that could take place in the believer's life is if there was a death suitable for the release of our bonds to sin. So when Paul says, I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he is saying is, I am a slave to Christ who released me from my first bonds, but I'm still purchased and owned by Him. And the only way that position is going to fail is if my master dies. You see where Paul's going? Will Christ Jesus ever die? No. Paul is saying, I am a bondservant to my Lord and Savior from now into eternity. Because He owns me. You see, Paul is revealing these ties. It is a tie spoken of in this word. They are so strong that only death itself can break them. But the cords that bind Paul to his master will never be broken since the new master will never again die. And is Paul's new life, saved from being the bondservant of sin, he is now a bondservant to Christ. So he is purchased. But he is also called. He is called. And he says, called as an apostle, or maybe a better way to say that is Paul was called apostle. And when he uses a word here, he is using it different than the other times that he uses it. Here he's using a shortened form of the word for apostle. And it is shortened because it refers more to a commissioned ambassador. As a country, we send out ambassadors to other countries around the world. The United States will send ambassadors to Israel, we'll send ambassadors to England, we'll send ambassadors to Germany, and so forth and so on. So we send out ambassadors. Their responsibility is not to do their own will. If an ambassador goes out and says, well, I think that you should do this way, he's already violated his trust back to his mother country. And so what we recognize is that an ambassador is commissioned with the task to look out for and protect the interests of that which sent them. In our country's situation, that is the United States. In Paul's situation, he has said, I am called an apostle. I am commissioned by God. And I have a task. It's not Paul's will. It's God's will that's coming through Paul. And this is something that's important, something that you and I should uh, agree with Paul. Now, we're not called an apostle. That position no longer is needed. We are called though as believers. In fact, we're going to see this. and Look down at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Paul is speaking to those who have been commissioned as believers. And this is important for you and I. Because all who know Christ as Savior are invited, and that's what called means, and indeed are saints. Apostle is commissioned and sent out. You and I, too, are sent out with a gift. Not apostleship, but we are sent out with a gift that we've already studied two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So we all know who Christ as Savior, if we know Christ as Savior, we are invited, called, we are brought into a party, and indeed are saints. And Paul is saying that he was commissioned to evangelize the Gentiles. That's what his commission was. Paul wasn't evangel wasn't to evangelize 
Israel. Although if there were Jews in the crowd, he wasn't forbidden from evangelizing them. But he, his main job, his main emphasis was to evangelize the Gentiles. And we're going to see that when we later look into his, his task. So we know that he was called. But then he says something interesting. He says that he was set apart. He was separated. He is separated. The tense of this word, separated, reveals that Paul was pulled out from all other people. In the past, and its effects continue into the future. So Paul was called out, that work was done. Now the effects of that are continually being felt. This was to set Paul into a lifelong task of taking the good news of God. So let's look back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, because we're going to see his calling, why he was called. This is his first commission. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Acts 9, 15. And in Acts 9.15, it says this. The Lord is speaking to Ananias, and he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. We recognize that Paul's calling was that he was going to go to the Gentiles specifically. He's going to reach others too, kings and the sons of Israel, but Gentiles specifically. And not only was he called for that task, but he was pulled out, he was singled out by the Lord. So he was set apart. Now, the easiest way for us to understand this is that when we see the same type of setting apart or setting aside, when we ordain a pastor. Now, unfortunately, this has kind of gotten lost in some instances, uh, but when it is done rightly before the Lord, our testing before the Lord and before the man, we set a man to the work of proclaiming and caring for the flock of the local church. So we set him apart. He has a lifelong task. And what the ordination council is doing is they're saying, we recognize that God has called him to this task. That's all that the ordination council is doing. But that man is now set apart for that work. And so one who is ordained is one who has been chosen and set apart Paul was chosen and set apart as an apostle. And he was set apart for the purpose of taking the gospel into the ears of those who had not, to this point, been told the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to reveal something here in just a moment. That was not an easy task. So we recognize Paul. One of the things that fascinates me, and this is what came out of my brief encounter with 1 Corinthians uh, it's been a content. I've tried to preach First Corinthians for two years, just so you know. One day it's going to happen. Just telling you. But as I've prepared for it, I've gotten ready, and I was kind of reviewing those things. One thing that stood out to me is the way Paul describes himself to the Corinthians. In First Corinthians chapter two, he says that I came before you trembling, and weak, and fearful. That's how Paul describes himself. Now, when you look at Romans chapter one, do you see a man who is weak, trembling, and fearful? But in the next verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, But it was by the power of the Spirit of God that I preached to you. We see the power of the Spirit of God working in Paul. And that is why we have such an incredible book that we're going to study. So let's move on to the purpose then. The purpose, 1 Corinthians... or See, I'm going to preach 1 Corinthians. It's just going to happen. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. 
And the scripture says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You see, these two verses could very, very easily be your life verses. You may be one sitting here today that says, You know what? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, for the Jew first and then also to the Greek. You may be one who says that. It may be a life verse for you. You may have taken this on. Many people have. Hopefully, though, those words are more than just committed to memory, but are a real part of your life. Because that is the purpose of Romans. But that is not only the purpose of Romans, that is really the essential purpose of every living believer. Because our job is to take the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission, to fulfill those Great Commission objectives, which is to go make disciples. Well, the way you make disciples is you share the gospel with them. So we come right back to this point. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul isn't. In fact, he's going to reveal that in an amazing way, and hopefully it's going to challenge you and I both. You see, first he says he is not ashamed. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, if there was ever a time that these words need to be made real in the life of every believer, I think it's today. But it was obviously true in Paul's day as well. Consider the context with me. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says this, he says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Permit me the opportunity to paraphrase this a little bit so that we understand it. What he's saying is, Rome, you city which is filled with pagan worship, bowing down to false gods, making your own rulers gods, committing all kinds of immorality among those uh, who I know will reject the message, I can't wait to come share the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying, I know that you're despicable. I know that you're lowly sinners. And you know what? I can't wait to get there because I'm just like you except I was saved by Jesus Christ. And I want to share the gospel message with you. When he says, I am not ashamed, that's what he means. So when was the last time you said, I'm going to go look for the lowest sinner that I can find and preach the gospel to him? Or maybe you were walking down the street and go, and you cross the street. Paul says, no, I'm looking for that guy because that's the guy I want to preach the gospel to. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you and I in our earthly selves say, but that person's not going to respond. Paul says he knows that. Notice what he says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says this. He says, I am not ashamed because it's not in my own power. It's in the power of God. Beside what he just said, Paul would not be ashamed to reveal the unkind reality of the condition of man and the unpopular truth that God will hold each man accountable. He says, you know what? He goes, I know you're lowly, despicable sinners. I was too. I was saved by Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I know what I'm going to tell you is unkind. You don't like to hear it. I know what I'm going to tell you is unpopular. You don't want to know it. But I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Because it is by that that the power of God is revealed in salvation. And then we look at the the power of the gospel. Having given that description, Paul reveals now why is he unashamed. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all, no matter what kind of sinner, all who believe. 
It is my personal opinion that, unfortunately, many are ashamed of the gospel today because they do not know its power. By personal witness, I can tell you that believers get excited about the power of God in salvation when they watch a vile sinner come to know Him as Savior. And they watch the transforming work of the power of God as this one is brought from sinner into saint, as this one is moved through the justification process into the sanctification process and brought to victory in Christ Jesus. That's when the body of Christ gets on fire. That's when the believer recognizes the power of God. And Paul knew it so well because he was that vile sinner. In fact, Paul later says, I was the chief of sinners. I was sinner among the sinners. And we gain this experience when they share the gospel. There are six words that Paul could have used for power. Six Greek words that Paul could have used. But he chose the word that reminds us that this power is inherent with the virtue of righteousness. And he's writing to the center of the greatest power on the earth. It'd be like writing to those who lived just off of one of the most powerful bases in the United States. He's writing to those who live in Rome, where the presence of the power of the Roman military is seen on every street corner, walking down the road, as as well as in the barracks and the bases. He's writing to those who experienced the power of Rome. They knew power. These are people who watch it and live with it every single day. They understood Paul's use of power as power that is inherent with the virtue of righteousness. So they realize that the gospel is the inherent, omnipotent power of God operating in the salvation of a lost soul that accepts it. When they saw power, they knew power, and they knew this was beyond the power they saw walking on the streets of Rome. And that builds to the righteousness of God. Verse 17, and we're not going to, I'm only, this is only an inner, just a getting my foot in the door of Romans. I'm not preaching this passage yet. Just wait until I do preach it. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I'm going to focus on just three words, righteousness of God. Later I'll work with the faith by faith, but righteousness of God. Paul reveals that the power behind the power is the righteousness of God. That forms the basis by which we're going to study the entire book. Because what Paul is saying is that which motivates God, that which accomplishes the work of salvation, that which does the work, is the righteousness of God. God is righteous, and because God is righteous, salvation is available to even the vilest of sinners. That's what Paul is saying. So this, uh, this word righteousness is a key word in the book of Romans. And it's going to come up over and over and over. And when it does, when we come to this passage, we're going to study it very carefully. For today's purposes, we understand that the reason the power of God is effective is because of the righteousness of God. The power of God is ineffective without the righteousness of God. But God is righteous and God is all-powerful. And that is where we fit in verse 17. So let's spend a few moments quickly looking at the outline. The outline. So we're going to look at the whole book now. As we come before this outline, we're going to travel through the length of this book rather quickly. But I'm doing so with this intention. That by the time I'm done, you're going to see how this book fits together and why it's so important that we study it. 
And so, as we do so, I want you to get this picture. It's very logical, it's very powerful in the way that this letter is assembled. So let's start. The first half of the book is the doctrine. Chapters 1 through 8 is doctrine. And the doctrine portion of the book takes up uh, the major portion. And it begins with the gospel, which we have already observed in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek And so then it moves into the conditions of those who do not know Christ as Savior. In fact, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When we get into this portion of chapter 1, it's, we're going to be, it's going to be grueling. I'm just going to tell you. It's hard. Because not only do we see our friends and our neighbors in this, but we see some of this in us. But what we understand is Paul begins with the gospel. He says, for I'm not ashamed to take the gospel to these types of people. And he reveals where you and I were. And then he later reveals that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He shows us where we were. He shows us what Christ did. Before he gets to the vile man, he reveals the promise of God for salvation. Then he talks about vile man. But then Paul takes the filth of that sinner and looks at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You should all have this memorized, especially if you work in Awana. Romans 3, 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul says, you know what? We're all just like those in chapter 1. He says, but the truth of the first part of chapter 1, I'm going to make real to you. And so he moves through this, through the truth of justification, all the way through chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and all the way to the purification and the security of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, For there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful passage. Considering the vile of chapter 1, Paul says, Now there is no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus Christ. But then he goes a step further. Look at the end of the chapter, 37 and 39, 37 through 39 of chapter 8. And he says this, but to all these things, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor a height nor uh, oh, things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See what Paul just did? He just organized the doctrine portion. He says, you know what? Our God is a great and righteous God. He provided salvation. He sent his son, he died for us, and Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because I'm going to take it to these barbarians who fill the rest of chapter 1. And when we get through that list, you're going to say, those are vile, despicable people, and unfortunately, we were just like them. And then he moves into chapter 3, and he says, by the way, we've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God, and for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so he moves into moving us through the process of moving from that vile sinner to becoming the one who stands before our God without the need of being condemned. And then he says, not only are you not condemned because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of the sanctification, because of the justification that has taken place through these chapters, not only can you stand uh, as one who is not condemned, but you can stand as one who is by the authority and the power of an all-powerful God always there. You are secure. Paul does a wonderful job of laying out the doctrine, but that's only the first part of the book. Let's look at the prophetic part of the book, chapters 9 through 11. 
chapters 9 through 11. And this is the middle portion of the book of Romans. And it considers Israel both past, present, and future. And it is important to the Gentiles' mind that we would understand that God is still going to work with His people, Israel. In fact, consider chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Pulling an Old Testament passage. Putting a part of it here. Verses 25 through 27. Says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So for the Gentile mind, Paul keeps the perspective for them. He moves them all the way through the doctrine and incredible and great things. But he says, but be careful, Gentiles, that you don't turn your back on Israel because God's not done with them yet. This forms a main emphasis, not only of the book of Romans, but also of our own church doctrine. And we recognize then that God is still going to do something with the people of Israel. Not there yet, but He's going to very soon. So, after a lengthy discussion, Paul arrives at the conclusion that while today is the time of the Gentiles, a time yet is to come that will be for the people of Israel. It has not yet happened, but it's going to. It's going to. That's the prophetic portion of the book of Romans. But then we get to the practical. I always like to get to the practical. I like the doctrine and I like the practical. And we're moving into the practical in chapters 12 through 16. Paul moves into the next largest portion in the book. In the second half, it is the largest portion to address the very life of each and every one of us. Those who have made the first eight chapters real in their life, now he says, okay, now it's time to put that into action. And if you remember from our previous study that we began the year with, in Ephesians, Paul did the exact same thing. Divided the book in half. The first half was doctrine. The second half was practical. He's doing the same thing. He's got doctrine and he's got practical. But he starts in this practical portion of the book with some incredible words, like chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice who he's now writing to. He's writing to those who have no condemnation before God, who stand in the security of their salvation because of the power of God. And he says, now, because you're there, now you can live this way. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to our great God. But then he moves uh, through the unpopular truth in chapter 13. It says this, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be sub- in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Now, how many of you like that truth? But it's a truth in the Word of God. And so when we get here, we're going to go through it. And we're going to recognize that you and I are subject to our government. You and I are not only subject to our government, but our government has been established by God. I don't care where you stand politically. uh, There's always going to be somebody in office you don't like. And you totally disagree with. But you know what? They've been established by God. We may not like it, but they've been established by God and we are subject to them. 
And then he continues through the daily issues of the conscience in chapter 14, understanding how we can live, where's our freedom. Uh, Paul gives us immense freedom. As we read through the Scripture, that wasn't him giving it to us, it was the Lord. And gives us immense freedom, but we always have those believers that say, I don't think that's quite right. So we have a weaker brother. And so we recognize them. So he moves through the issues of the conscience. And he continues through all of that to the principles of living within the community of believers. And he says this, verse, or chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Oh, chapter 15, we're not going to like either. And so when we get into that one, we're going to study that one. But you see what Paul is doing as he's laying it out. Have you ever noticed before that I enjoy Paul's clear and detailed outlines? I love the way Paul, I think like Paul outlines. It makes it easy for me. And he gets to the point and he makes it. If you could say anything about my preaching, it may be a little too blunt. And in some cases, Paul's a little too blunt for our liking. We need it. We need to hear it. But he gets to it and he makes his point. And he's going to do that in the book of Romans. This new study is going to take some time to complete. I don't anticipate it being within the next four months at least. But I trust that as we begin this endeavor, you will find yourself growing in Christ, enthralled in the work done in our salvation, seeing what it, what it took for us to move from that vile sinner to move to that one who stands before God under no condemnation. And then I hope that you are unable to be silent about the gospel. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed to take this gospel message and go find the dirtiest, filthiest, most vile sinner and share the gospel with him because I want to watch as the Lord transforms that man or that woman into a believer. You see, Paul was unable to be silent. I hope that you would be as Paul, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we bow our heads before you this morning, I praise you for a book that is going to radically transform us as we see the process that you have done in our lives as we've moved from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 all the way through Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, all the way to the end, Romans chapter 8, where we realize that we stand uncondemned and in the security of Your everlasting arms, where nobody and nothing can remove us. And then I pray that we'd be found faithful in keeping Israel in their place, recognizing that You are not done with them and we should not turn our backs upon Your people. And finally that we would understand how to put it all into practice. Lord, I know there's messages along in this book that we're not going to like to hear, but I pray that you would challenge us to be here, to be a part of it, to be listening, and to be attentive, and to be obedient. And help us to enjoy digging into the delightful truths that are found in this book. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.